Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza. And before we get to uh, this episode, just a couple quick announcements from us. I guess the biggest one is the Entrepreneur Summit that's coming up on June 6th and 7th. We're super pumped about this thing. It takes a lot of work. This is the second time we're doing it. We're calling it the second annual because we think we are going to be doing it annually. We're pretty, we've convinced ourselves that we're going to be doing it annually anyway. Um, so this is the second one. We did the first one last year. The feedback was over the top. So we decided to do it again. So it's coming up this um, June 7th. Let me get the date straight here. June 7th and 8th, 6th and 7th. Hold on. Stay with me. Checking the dates. I should know this stuff. It is June 7th and 8th. Sorry, I don't know if I said 6th and 7th earlier. Definitely June 7th and 8th is when uh, is when the Entrepreneur Summit is. To get details about that, it's at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash summit. Summit is S-U-M-M-I-T. So rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash summit. It's June 7th and 8th. This is for anyone who's looking to start their own business or who already has an existing business and wants to grow it to the next level. We are sharing everything that we've uh, done ourselves over the years, a lot of the stuff that's worked, and we're also going to be sharing stuff that has not worked because we've definitely made a lot of mistakes over the years um, business on business operations, on our marketing strategies, and some of that's cost us a lot of money. Nick and I joke whenever we have a big marketing failure of any sort, sometimes it just we think it'd be more fun just to take the money that we spent on that and you know light it on fire in front of the office because it'd be more entertaining to watch that than watch the failure of a of a marketing effort happen when we generate no leads and no interest in the, in the business. Um, but the benefit in making all those failures is that we learn ourselves what doesn't work and we will share that with you so that you don't have to make the mistakes that we've made. So, um, from a marketing point of view over the years, we've kind of covered all the bases from newspapers to uh, radio, um, YouTube advertising, Google advertising, Facebook advertising, email marketing, um, pretty much any magazines, trade shows, uh, trade magazines, basically any type of media that you can think of. We've probably tested it out in one way, shape or form. And those are the different things that we're also going to be sharing at the Entrepreneur Summit. We're also going to be bringing, uh, breaking down things into three categories, the principles of business that we wish we knew when we started. Um, so there's definitely some principles we've learned just apply to any business. And then the strategies that you can use with those principles. So the strategies is getting a little bit more granular and how do we apply some of those principles? What strategy are we going to use? So like what business niche are you in? What industry are you in? What type of customers and clients are you serving? Whether it's retail or service-based, product-based, or you're delivering something as a, as a, as a consulting service, doesn't really matter. Those things, um, these things can apply across, um, all different categories of business. And then finally, we're going to dive into the tactics. So we're going to talk principles. We're going to talk strategies. And then we're going to dive into the tactics and the tactics of business are where most people spend most of their time. It's the most appealing thing. You know, it's kind of like the latest YouTube advertising or the latest thing to do on social media. It's where kind of you can get distracted a lot of the times. But what we found is once you understand the principles of business and once you have some strategies that you're going to apply in business, then you can leverage those tactics very efficiently. But if you just start with the tactics, which is where a lot of people we have found focus all their efforts on and don't have a good strategy and you're not using um, some solid principles, you don't have the foundation of business to really kind of move you forward. So we're going to be talking about things and, and dividing them in between those three categories. 
So again, it's June. Um, I've already forgot the date again. I'm going to have to get this straight because I'm supposed to be there. It's June 7th and 8th. So uh, so it's Thursday, June 7th, all day, and Friday, June 8th, all day. Um, you can find more information about this at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash summit, S-U-M-M-I-T. I think we had some hiccups with that website um, in the last couple of weeks, but it's all straightened out now. You can find all the information out there. Okay. On to today's episode. So we met Erwin Sito a long time ago, kind of meandered into uh, to the brokerage, I guess. Um, really good guy, really focused guy. Um, we've been working together now. You'll hear us talk about it on the podcast. I believe it was it's about eight years at this point. Um, so Erwin left his uh, the corporate Canadian world that he was in to focus on real estate on a full-time basis. He was buying re- uh, real estate investment properties for himself before he did that. You're going to be he- hearing about uh, a wooden foundation that I've never heard about in my life before, but apparently Irwin has experience with that. And uh, he's just an all-around great guy. He runs his own podcast. Um, he runs the uh, Halton Real Estate Investors Group that you can, ha- uh, you'll, uh, he doesn't, we don't actually talk about it that much, but he runs that as well. Um, you can find more about Irwin at uh, the URL Truth About Real Estate. Let me get that straight too. TruthAboutRealEstateInvesting.ca. So the URL for Irwin is TruthAboutRealEstateInvesting.ca. If you want to um, learn more information about any of those things, you can check them out there. Um, we had a great time chatting. He's been working together. Um, with us here at Rockstar for about eight years, like I mentioned, he has his own team here. Um, so he's been growing. Um, he served a lot of investors at this point. He has a great amount of experience um, and an all-around good guy. So uh, with that, let's get to it. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Erwin Sito, but we just had to talk in here and Erwin said the proper way to pronounce his last name, you really didn't mind, but you were saying the way to pronounce your last name is... Sito. 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 Like Sito Gaston. Uh, yeah, but you got to get this is the annotation. You got to go in, like in, high. Yeah, the intonation. You got to be all oh, intonation. Yeah. You got to be. That's you got to be an up talk. Basically, I'm, I'm not going to do it. You got to up talk, right? You got to up talk. Up talk. Yeah. What's up talk? Up talk is like when someone says something, you're like, "So, what do you think?" You know, when people say, <laughs> "Oh, got it." <laughs> you haven't heard that term? Like someone's no, an up talker. No, no. I think yeah, Seinfeld no. had an old whole episode oh, really? on up talking. Oh, gosh. Okay, so Irwin is in the house, and uh, Irwin, you got it. Why? Let's just cut to the chase. You quit your job. I don't know how you came to that conclusion because you were doing it at a time that not many people we knew were doing that kind of stuff. I mean, Nick and I had quit our jobs. What? What made you quit? Your well, hold job? on, hold on. Let's be clear here. You didn't quit your job at first. He he took a sabbatical, didn't you? Oh, is that what yeah. you did? You yeah. took a long term sabbatical. So you're strategic. First. So he, yeah, yeah. So there was a, there was That's some strategic. thought behind it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it wasn't just like, hey, you know, cut cut ties and run, which I think is a better way to do it. I'm well, it's super interesting it. because most people think entrepreneurs are risk takers, and we tell people all the time, oh no, entrepreneurs no, no. are far from risk takers. No. Uh, they're actually risk averse. Um, Very. But yeah. So how did that work out? So where were you working first of all? So when I started investing, I was working for a company. Uh, my client was Gateway Computers. 
Is that okay I say this stuff? Yeah. Okay, so Probably not, but that'll just yeah. your problem after. We're not going to block it out. <laughs> <laughs> They're defunct now anyways. They got bought by Acer, I believe. Um, but I wasn't making enough money at work, so that's why I got into real estate investing. And, and then along the way, uh, I could no longer work with the broker I was working with. So then I sent out an email to back then back then before like facebook groups and forums yeah, and stuff like that at a, we were we were uh, i was a part of a, this big hamilton investor email chain and so i just threw out the question does anyone know a hamilton realtor and then it was actually maria, maria Marcuse that replied to me sorry i specifically asked for one that knew investments and then maria replied back leslie kitchen at rockstarbrokers.com and like oh okay and then and then so i looked so i just took the rockstarbrokers.com googled it and then i found you guys <laughs> wow I didn't even tell all this time. Uh, I didn't know that. And then you found Leslie and, but uh, what kind of property? So you were, while you were working, you had already owned some rental properties in Hamilton. Yes. Were yes. you living in Hamilton? I was living in Burlington to be with my partner at the time. And we were investing specifically in Waterdown. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Just cause it was close. It's uh, it's where, where my friends had businesses. So that's an area we understood. Uh, but we weren't very good investors. We bought like some really crappy property. I, I, went, I owned a house that was from 1880s with a wood, so log wood foundation. So whenever oh, it rained, man. it would leak. And it had a dirt basement floor. So it was no poured floor. And yeah, we've seen that kind of stuff. Was it even a basement? It was a crawl space. Like it wasn't uh, actual basement, No, you could stand it? up. It was still like 6'2". Oh, wow. So right. it was a nice crawl space. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, but this is before, and this is before we, we really knew much. Why did you buy something with a wood foundation? You just thought it was a good price? It was, it was, uh, we were, in the middle of the correction, this is around 07. And so, uh, we that's got a pretty, th- if, if 07 was a correction, it was a pretty, it was like a blip on the radar. That's a yeah, pretty, that was, it was a blip on the radar, radar correction, but the media yeah. was playing it really strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The media. So the seller was like, uh, sh- her partner had passed and she wanted to get rid of it. And she came to us cause she knew that we bought property. Uh, she had this real realtor's appraisal and then she, and then she asked us, what do you want for it? And so we, th- we threw out a price like 20 grand less than what the re- agent thought it was worth. And she said, okay, like, oh crap. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have to buy it. <laughs> now we have to buy it. Now I own a home with a wooden foundation. So let me get this straight. Cause I've never seen such a home. <laughs> like we're talking logs piled up on each yeah. other. Yeah. That, you know why that's great? Because then it, your basement always leaks, so it's never a problem. It's actually a feature of the home that the basement leaks. Well, yeah, you got a little pond in the ba- you can You can have fish, like fresh fish, fish every you day. Can actually, you and, basically yeah. have a swamp yeah. underneath yeah. your house. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's nice to have not, not a poured, fa- poured basement because it's just dirt, so the water will just drain. <laughs> why, uh, why were you buying, why did you even consider buying real estate? You were in the tech industry. Yeah. Yeah. Why, you know, most people in that industry are buying tech stocks and right. that kind of stuff. Why, uh, why real this estate? This was after, the tech bubble burst so this was shortly after 9-11 for me um, so I went so my tech company wasn't doing that well uh, we were uh, part of our part of our company was getting slaughtered by uh, outsourcing to India um, so yeah I, I, I didn't realize at the time but yeah I, w- I was trying to get out I was lucky to get out of there and we I started investing because like uh, I had a bunch of small caps of tech stocks and and I bought them based on research. So I subscribed to this research place. They say, oh, they recommend, they, had, they made strong business cases for all these companies. I loaded up on those stocks and they all got slaughtered yeah. during that correction. Versus Everyone, my real estate. Which is what happened to all I of think, us. You know what? I think every single real estate investor got had, slaughtered on tech one stocks. Po- at some point in time, maybe not tech stocks, but stocks at some point in yeah, time. Yeah, I just yeah. figured like no matter how much research from different things mm-hmm. you buy, there's just too many variables. 
I don't know because it's 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 probably the most common thing amongst all the investors that we've ever spoken with that at one point in time they've they just got got really hurt mm-hmm. in, in the stock well, market yeah, and, and they said for, you know what I got to diversify for know. our age bracket and for you know for yeah, this yeah, I mean true. Irwin because you're you're how old now. I'm 39. Big four O's coming next yeah. year. So yeah, for this age bracket, I'm 45. So in this five year, Nick's turning. When are you turning for? Yeah, I turned you're 40. 40. Well, oh I'm still God. young compared to you. You're like Nick's an old turn, man. Nick's turning 40 in a month. But uh, for all of us in that kind of era, I think yeah, that's kind of what defined us. Was there any books that you were reading at that time that also got you thinking about real estate? Uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad kicked it off. Who gave you Rich Dad Poor Dad? How'd you stumble into it? It's actually my ex's father. Huh. So I have him to thank a lot for for. Um, this getting on this journey of investment real estate. Very cool. Yeah. So rich dad, poor dad. Then did you go down the whole rich dad series like the rest of us? Cash flow quadrant, all that stuff. A little bit. Uh, I'm. I've become someone who will take a little and then act, act. on it now. Versus yeah. like the first part of my life is like analyze the crap out of stuff. Yeah. So to go back to what you were asking me about, like the the leaving the job. Uh, so after I Googled rockstarbrokerage.com, I came to the free training. Uh, I was already getting my license as well because I couldn't work with the broker I was with. And no one was addressing the niche that I was, that I, as a Hamilton investor, no one was addressing that area. So I was trying, that's why I got my license to, to just service ourselves. Uh, and then uh, you some came- people found out I was getting my license and they had the same issue. So they asked to work with me. So then I started making money as an agent. I was actually writing offers while at my previous employer. <laughs> I was the worst employee. That also, sound, that also sounds like the rest of us. Okay. So, and had we met you at this point? Yes. You, yes okay. So you yeah. had come to, were we the first brokerage you joined with your license? Yes. Yes. Okay. I interviewed with the broker I was working with, but then I fa- figured it wasn't a good fit uh, because I wanted to work with investors. I wanted, I wanted more investor focus and they didn't understand things like economic fundamentals and buying near you know infrastructure improvements and that sort of stuff they didn't understand real estate from that angle is more standard you know buy something and it always goes up yeah you I, I remember when we met the first time mm-hmm. because it was in a burlington office right yeah, yeah. Well, coffee shop slash office but it was you know, right it's I, amazing it, that Irwin even trusted us or thought that this was an actual brokerage to join at that moment but i remember because i thought you <laughs> i thought you were actually a member who someone someone <laughs> was working with I snuck in. and i wasn't i wasn't aware and then when we were having the conversation i was like oh this is a whole different meeting than i was expecting mm-hmm. but i actually remember that and then you you took it all away and you're like okay well i'm gonna go think about it and i just Never expected to hear from you again. Like, oh, he seems like a nice guy. Never hear from that guy again. Yeah. And then <laughs> next thing I know, I think you arranged a, a, a lunch at that Greek restaurant and we were talking about Erwin leaving and joining Rockstar. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. I yeah. I, 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 I forget that remember lunch. that lunch totally. so much. Uh, I don't know why. Because I think I was staring at Erwin going, thinking, oh my gosh, there are other crazy people in the world. Because, <laughs> yeah. and actually, you know, just the people that we've seen have the most success and take the most action have all been like that. Like Mike DeSormel just walked in the door and said, hey, guys, I'm just going to start working with you guys. And we looked at each other. I remember thinking, OK, yeah. mm-hmm. Leslie Kitchen decided really quickly to your point. You brought up Leslie. Irwin's the same way. Irwin met us. You decided that you were going to do your thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, when you think of when you put it that way, there's a number of them. G- G- it, e- Gal- like, almost a, everyone. The same way yeah. Who just it, it wasn't like this big year long process. It was just kind of a quick decision. Crazy attracts crazy. I think yeah. it was after the free training that I came to, I, I had made the decision. This is where I was going to be. Got it. Right. So you met us. You thought we were a little bit crazy, but not totally insane so that you would start working with us. <laughs> uh, I wasn't so focused on the crazy. It's more like, you know, you guys spoke the same language yeah, as yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah. 
about investing because that's very rare. Yeah, I think when we've all been down the path of buying an income property of some sort and, uh, uh, you know, had a realtor. And, and now that we've been in the industry for a long time, there's lots of good realtors, let's face it. But we had all had those experiences of buying a property, realtor sticking his hand out at the closing day, shaking mm-hmm. your hand and saying, you made a great choice. Real estate can never go down. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Or let me know, you know, if, if you ever want to buy or sell another one, let me know. Let and me know. Good luck with this. Yeah, yeah, and they disappear. No talk about rent prices. No talk about the greater macroeconomic picture. No talk about interest rates. Yeah. No talk about the Bank of Canada. Canada, no talk about rent rates and what happens to rent. Nothing. Yeah, right? and I'm sure even at that time, like when I started, I'm sure there were good ones. I, you know, I I didn't have the experience with them that I would have liked to. Um, but it's like any industry, right? It, it is like any industry that there, you know, or any big industry with not really a high barrier to entry, mm-hmm. right? It's relative, at that time when I got my license, it was three open book exams. Like it was even you know less lower barrier than now. Um, there's going to be good and bad to anything, you know, and with a large number of people that in most industries, the ones that are really good at what they're doing, it's usually a smaller percentage. So listen, I think realtors get overall get a bad rap and, you know, yeah. we've kind of been spoken negatively about our early experiences, but there's always good. There always has been, and there will always totally, will be yeah, good yeah. realtors. But I think the reason that they get such a bad rap kind of in the industry and they're often associated with, you know, you'll hear people make jokes like, oh, realtors, that's like a used car salesman sure, or totally, a lawyer yeah, yeah. or something like that. But My explanation now that we've been in this industry for some time is that when I was in software sales, working in groups of 100, 150 salespeople on a floor in two different companies, if all of those people didn't have the banner of the corporation that they were at to kind of hide behind, Mm -hmm. and if they instead advertise themselves as Mm -hmm. an individual software sales rep, it would have the same kind of feel that it has in the real estate industry because real estate agents advertise themselves as individuals. That's fair. Even though they're part of a brokerage, they kind of push themselves out in their advertising as, hey, work with me. I'm the guy or gal to work with, right? But in other corporations, you kind of are not hiding, but you're under the banner of the corporation. So you're not advertising yourself individually. You're advertising the company. Yeah. You happen to be the point of contact at the company. But That's not like that in real estate. But if it was in the software world, trust me, I worked with a lot of, like some of the biggest influences of my whole life have come from the software industry. But I also worked with some crazies in the software yeah, industry. Yeah, no, that's fair. But they also, even in that environment, there's different reps for different products because they, spe- they have the answers for those products and they specialize in those those kind of what would be sub-markets or whatever. Whereas sometimes... In real estate, when people are getting started, they feel like they want to be all things to all people, and sometimes that can, get, you know, that can cast them in a lesser light because they they don't have the experience. It's like when some, if someone came to us right now to buy a vacant piece of land somewhere to do some sort of condo development on it, I'd be like, look, you know, if you're talking to me, just myself, to as the person to help you, I'm not going to be, not right. I'm not yeah. going to be able to serve them, and I'm going to be very open about that. But there are a segment of, of realtors, and this is this is every industry. So I'm not I'm not kind of knocking just like realtors here. There's a segment of people that will be they'll see short term money, they'll look at the commission check, and they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, I'll figure it out. Who cares? Because I'm just going to go after this commission. Yeah, they're blinded by the money. That's so Irwin, but there's great ones. Yeah, absolutely, there's great ones. To that point, then, did you you decided from day one you were going to work with primarily investors? No, day one was actually I was just going to trade my own buy for myself and my joint venture partners. Okay, got it. That's so then we word, did. yeah, that's, that's what we did. That's exactly. So what we all started the same. Yeah. So then word started spreading, and you started helping other people. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I, I was already net, I was already well networked with other investors, so they they knew me, they trusted me, they had the same issue I did finding help, uh, and uh, you know, like like Nick was saying, there's no one that specializes in this. 
And I always believe that, you know, you should be the best at whatever it is you do. And also, if you look at how we're paid, at least how I looked at it was based on how the rates that we were getting paid is I better be damn good. Because I came from a business background and I looked at like consultants, for example, who bill out at like two to four to six hundred dollars an hour, which is pretty close to the kind of rates that we're getting. So we better be damn good. We better be professional on that level. Right. That's and that's how I look that's how it. I viewed that's how I viewed my position and the work that I do. And that's what we always try to deliver on. Like be better than everybody else. So when did you make the decision to leave the job official to take the sabbatical and right. then to leave permanently? So I, I already started working with clients. I was doing more real estate for ourselves. And then I made the realization it was costing me money to be at the job. Hmm. So there was just a simple, just simple numbers, simple math. My hourly rate outside of work is this versus my hourly rate here is this. I can make more money not here. And so I made the decision to go on sabbatical, uh, which includes like two weeks not paid. I took four weeks off to, get, to see, to give it a run as a test. Because I believe in testing everything. It's not yeah. a very big run that you gave it. Good for you. No, you, but no yeah, not yeah. a big run. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But then after that, I gave it a run. Uh, I returned back on Monday, assume a Monday, and then I gave my notice. Um, I was, uh, again, I was trying to be nice because I had a great, I had a great job. I had lots of flexibility. The work I was doing was highly valued. I was a knowledge-based expert, so everyone treated me with respect. Uh, and a great boss who gave me lots of flexibility. So I said, you know, as long as you need me here, I'll be here part time until you find a replacement. And then did they take up? Did they took you up on that. Uh, they did because they could. They had a difficult. I knew it'd be difficult. I didn't, actually no, I didn't think it'd be difficult to replace me because first of all, I was the least expensive. I think I was the least expensive person on her team. So also, I judged my value to be there. And it was actually funny because the next day she pulled me into my her office like you know around ten o'clock in the morning. She said, "Give me a number," and I said there is no number. I don't belong here. And then I said, and you should have gave them like 500 yeah. grand or like 1.2 yeah. million you know just, just to see the reaction. For 600 grand a year. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. I'll stick around for one more year. And, uh, and then I said, then I said, but it doesn't matter. I'm probably the easiest one to replace on the team. Cause the other one, other people on the team, my team had much more, they had like math MBAs. They had, uh, CF, uh, CFAs. They had masters of math, stuff like that. Right. They had, I only have my, I only have my honors degree, which is undergraduate. They had much more beyond that. So I said, I must be, I'm sure I'm the most easiest one to replace. And she actually said, she said, you're actually the most difficult one to replace because you get stuff done. Yeah. Interesting. Like yeah. our whole life that we've learned. What a shocking our, trend. Yeah. Shocking observation. Yeah. So okay. getting stuff done apparently is a, is a highly valued job skill. Yeah. Apparently it's a huge, uh, yeah. Sometimes we, it's more rare than, than people yeah, we, we, realize. We laugh at that all the time. So, um, and then, you, so you you didn't 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 give her a number. You took this sabbatical, and then you're like, okay, now I'm gone, but yeah. I'm gonna help. And then, how long did you help them out part time? Uh, I was there for maybe six months, but I started with like she asked for like three days. I said I'll give you two, and then soon after, I dropped down to one, and then it was just really painful to go. And so it's actually neat that way in that being part time, the experience was so painful to continue to make that commute to Toronto. That made me more motivated to be successful. Because you were side. living in uh, Burlington, Burlington yeah. but you were taking the go, I guess, down yeah. into Toronto. Taking so that was uh, painful. So those hours when you were helping people that, when you weren't working on your own deals and you were helping other investors mm -hmm. and you were working, what were your days like? Oh, brutal. Yeah, yeah. Get home, show property. At least I was part-time, right? So, and, sorry, and even, even some of the part-time I was working from home. So I at least had the time flexibility in my schedule to still show property, do deals. Uh, but yeah, 
I, I burnt out pretty quickly after. Yeah. So the six month uh, overlay between me like saying I was going to give notice and then working with uh, keeping my full time job. I didn't have part time hours. My hours were like 430 until after uh, about 1130 at night. Yeah. And I remember sitting at my desk because I had two laptops. I had my corporate laptop, but then I had a laptop bag, which was my other life, which was with the real estate stuff. Mm-hmm. And I kind of lugged that around with me as well. And uh people would come into my office in my corporate world before I had left and they would say, hey, they would look at the bags under my eyes and say, hey, Tom, are you going to die? Like, are you going to be okay? But that's what it took. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what it took to kind of like do both things. And then Mm -hmm. ultimately um, gave me the confidence to quit. I think Nick and I had our first month about four months after I had said, hey, within the next six months, I'm going to give notice where we had, I think, seven or eight deals close all in that one month. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give notice. And I remember one of the regional sales managers when I said I was going to give notice and I explained why that we had these seven or eight deals he said yeah but do you think you can keep that up and the thing is Nick we had never talked I never even had that thought I just assumed I could keep it up mm-hmm. <laughs> I had never never had much more of a plan other than I'm going to work hard and of course I'm going to be able to keep it up but that was my kind of risk aversion like can we get enough income in one month to really make this worthwhile for me to be able to step away especially with the family so then, I think it was the same thing some something that Irwin did as well is I remember when when that happened and when we started growing our team as well was when we figured out that it was costing us money to not do it right so like we would put you know there's only so many hours in the day that I was kind of doing stuff we would put down on the board like how many people we were helping that were looking for properties we couldn't find them so we needed just kind of more boots on the ground and that you know, it, it gave us, I think some, or I think it gave you some comfort that there's go, there's like this pipeline of business that's not being served. And if we serve it, we feel like we could backfill that pipeline, but it's also going to give, provide some of the income that, that's necessary to, for the family and, and that type of thing. Totally. And it was the same thing when we grew the team too, because it was just like, you know what, we're, we're now losing out on business. We got to kind of, you know, move beyond just you and I. And at that time it was like a part-time assistant, but it was time to, to kind of keep going with it. Yeah. We were leading with revenue basically. Totally, you know, we yeah. were looking at the revenue opportunities and letting that kind of run faster than, than, uh, and I, th- then, then maybe we, you know, we could have quit earlier, but we kind of led with the revenue. That was a line I think I got from Gary Keller's book, one of the Keller Williams books, you know, the, uh, the founders of Keller Williams. Yeah, right. I forget which book he wrote. Millionaire Agent. Was it in that one he talks about lead with revenue? But uh, anyway, Erwin, um, to go back to you, what did your family say about you quitting? They were... How old hold on, How old were you when you did it? I joined here 2010. So that was... So eight so years, years ago. ago. So, so you're like 31. 31, yeah. They, yeah. Were, they, they were like... Uh, they weren't sure. A lot of other people said like, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, because you had classic, went to university. Where did you go to university? Went to Western. So I did my honors in business. Yeah, so go to university, get good job. And then at 31, just as the career starting to get into its maturation phase, you're like, I'm pulling pulling shoot. I'm out. Um, Yeah, so, but they weren't aggressively against you, it sounds like. No one was really aggressively against me, but they're like, you know, that's, what's that one... One in ten businesses fail in the first four years or whatever. Like something like that. Yeah, people kept throwing that at me, and I, I think I think, and we all know how saturated this this industry is. Like, there's an unbelievable number of real estate agents. There's thirty one hundred people registered to the Real Estate Association in Hamilton, Burlington. Thirty one, thirty one or thirty five hundred. They told me on they told me on last week. That's a lot of people that you have to compete with. And so, did you ever have a moment, or when did you have the moment you're like, oh, I think this might go bad? 
every day. <laughs> yeah, for how long? <laughs> Still. <laughs> Still. <laughs> the paranoia drives the us fear. all. Like, you yeah. guys talked about that, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. The fear. Right. Yeah, it's fear drives us. Like, uh, fear definitely drives us constantly. Like, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it, it makes us do what we want to do. And, and I think people don't like to hear that because they want to hear about passion. But fear and frustration definitely seem no. to be more powerful. Fear. Okay. Like we had, we we're going through this correction right now. And, you know, I keep thinking about, like, how to you know, make my pro- my portfolio more defensive and uh, the decision to continue to invest for cash flow because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We never know what's going to happen. What, uh, what type of, uh, so you started working with investors. Did you guide them to one sort of property? Like what was your strategy with investors? Did they, did you one area, one sort of property? What did you do? Uh, it's largely based on cash flow. So back in, back early uh, we could still cash flow with single families. So actually, our, what I was pushing clients towards was like semis, where you could get almost the same rent as a detached, but pay, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 less. So we did a lot of semis early on. Uh, was avoiding the townhouse condos because that worked out well because those those uh, condo fees were going out of control. The ones in Hamilton, they were going up like 15%. So hindsight, it worked out well to avoid those. Uh, but yeah, sing, a lot of single family, starter home, you know, something that's, Back then, it was like low 200s for a detached three-bedroom with a side entrance. And it's so funny because mm-hmm. how do you feel when you were buying at low 200s? Did you still feel like oh. the value, like you felt it like it was a stretch or you're like, man, I feel like I'm paying top dollar for this property? Oh, yeah. Yeah, every every deal. Again, the fear, the fear is always yeah. there. Like every deal, like, oh, I think we overpaid. You always <laughs> yeah. feel like you, you never feel like you got a deal. Like, you know, yeah. Even if you get a deal, you feel like you could have got a yeah. better deal. Yeah. Right. And it's just so quick. It's so funny how short our memories are when it comes to things like property prices, mm-hmm. you know, because we just don't we, we just focus on just like what Well, you have no you have the historical context, but it's really tough to have a future context yeah. of something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely am a little bit strange on that where I don't really think I overpay too much. I just kind of pay. I never really have that buyer's remorse. No, I can I can vouch for that. Tom just often like I'm the one that I was always like, well, you know what about this? Like, I, you know, and Tom's I, like, whatever, just buy this, and and it won't even just apply to real estate. It'll apply to. Yeah, I'm not know. saying I do it with the smart. <laughs> definitely will buy things on a whim, but um, I don't know why. I'll just buy it and move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I just believe that there's a. I don't know, Nick, who taught us this principle, but, you know, money is attracted to speed and the velocity of money. I'm just like, hey, let's move on. I'd no, rather make the decision quickly. And if I screwed up on the decision, I will learn based off that decision. But I'm not going to sit here and debate whether I overpaid or not. Yeah. I've already made that decision. I'm already on to the next decision. No, there's some, there's, and then I'm not saying that's right. It's just the way my brain's wired. That's the way I do it. Yeah, and I'm going to say there, there's something to be said for that approach. Like there is a good side to that approach. It's not my, it's like for me to to move forward. I don't need, I don't need three weeks to think about things. I like to think it over and just kind of look at it from a few different more angles than you would. Which but, also but, always makes logical sense. When yeah. You but I'm not it. saying your approach is wrong. Cause sometimes I'm like, shit, why did I spend so much time thinking about this damn thing? I should have just done it three days ago yeah. and I would have freed up all these mental yeah. cycles. I could be on something it, else. It was so. funny though. Cause when you, when you were buying semis at uh, that point, they started to go up. Do you remember when they started going up to like 220, 230, 240? And yeah. I think when they hit around like 240, we all looked at each other like, oh my God. Two hundred and forty thousand yeah. dollars for a semi city on the yeah in <laughs> Hamilton, Ontario. This is insane, and people were telling us, "You guys are crazy." Market's over. Yeah, it's over. Party's and over. now, and you know what? The same thing's happening now. And Irwin, I know we talk about this a lot together, but uh, Nick and I talk about this, and we just heard one of CIBC's economists, Benjamin Tall, mentioned this just last week that he went. He said a line 
Erwin, were you telling me about it as well? He said a line, I think, last week that we've been saying for some time, so it kind of is a little bit of validation, is that you think property prices in this area are expensive now. Wait for the next 10 years. What's going to happen 10 years from today? And I think that's what we've done a pretty good job about guiding people around. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, buy for cash flow mm-hmm. um, because that that's defense. It protects you and it's kind of like a defense, a smart defensive maneuver that's making you monthly profit, but it'll let you survive. And then if the appreciation comes, let it come. But mm-hmm. we're never going to bank on it. We're never going to expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, and no one's ever going to guarantee it for us. Right. Right. And I'm sure that was the same message you were giving your investors. It is. The message almost changes now because, like, when you're talking about when when we were buying stuff for low two hundred. So I've done analysis back on just pulling. I pulled like three bedroom houses detached, uh, one level, so bungalows for Hamilton Mountain, and I looked. I dug back like five years, right? Just looking at the at the, at the numbers, and on average, that price for that property has gone up between thirty six hundred and six thousand dollars a month, right? So then the decision is well. To me, the decision is, do I want to pay more in the future or would I like to pay today's prices? So then that's how it kind of helps me with the decision process. Yes, I want to buy now. I want to pay a cheaper price versus what, what yeah. I think it might be in the future. It's hard for a lot of people to see that. that, that it that, is. That's foresight. hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's smart. But, but it's, and, uh, and to be fair, it's not going to be a straight line no, it's either. Not. Right? No, yeah. and, that's, and I think that's when people kind of start freaking out because they expect a straight line. And as soon as any, there's any little hiccup, they're like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to hold off. But... Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we mention this all the time, and that's something we got from Rob Minton. I think this line was, it's it's about time in the market, which is exactly what you're speaking about. It's not about timing the market. Mm-hmm. Like, look, if you can time the market, great. But I mean, no one, there's no stock investor or anything that has, has consistently been able to acquire assets and time the market. You know, Jim Rogers always says it best. He's like, I have no idea what's going to happen. He's a very successful stock investor, right? No idea what's going to happen. He's like, I just know the trends. I just know kind of that it's going to happen. But he goes, when it comes mm-hmm. to timing, I have no idea. I, I'll give you a five-year window maybe, but he still doesn't know, right? And that's always kind of sat in my head and kind of right. reminded me of certain things. I do think it's easier now though, because I was investing back in 07, 08 during the credit crisis. And I remember we like, you know, sky is falling, we'd have a vacancy and we'd have like three applications. And we didn't know what we were doing back then. So this was kind of funny. We actually asked for, no, we required $200 cash or certified funds with your application to show you're serious. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. So I remember uh, our first vacancy during during that period, three applications with money. Those are serious applications. Yeah. If they're doing yeah. that, they're, there's good applications. And too. this is a straight rent for an apartment, right? In that 1880s building. So it wasn't even that nice a property, right? Because life still happens, and sadly, divorce still happens, and that was mainly the applications we were getting. Yeah. There were divorcees, and they still had kids, but they still needed a place to live. There's no credit. Remember how bad credit was back then? You couldn't get credit. We had, we had, uh, my partners and I made good money, and we had really good credit, so we were still able to acquire. Uh, but then looking back, you know, anyone who's investing back then, the regret is, I wish I bought more. And so when this when this last cycle happened. You know, I bought two properties after after the the market went sliding after the housing fairness plan back in back in May. I bought a property in the summer and I bought a property in December, right? So I don't think anyone can time the market, but I thought I was making educated decisions, and it looks like I was probably pretty right because it looks like we're on the way back up already for Hamilton based on January, February, and March prices, and we're seeing multiple offers everywhere. So I think I I don't recommend people try to time the market, but I look from my experience. And also my confidence that rents will, will hold or go up. If anything terrible happens, I'll be good. And also I have a huge long-term view. I'm a big long-term view person. Yeah. 
But what, but see, to this that same point of what you spoke about, right? You had also bought other properties mm-hmm. in previous years mm-hmm. when when that didn't happen. Yeah, because right? yeah. if you were just waiting for that slide to oh. happen, then you would be you what look what you would have missed out on. Right, you know, for your your own portfolio, mm-hmm. right? A, a ton of potential. So that's where, and I think that's that's what we see sometimes happen for people. They're always waiting, wait no. perpetually, just waiting for that next crash or downturn right. or whatever. And it's, it's like, never gonna. You that's just what, gotta get in. Like, yeah, and, and then t- when it happens, they're like, "Well, it's gonna it's gonna go further down." So I'm gonna wait a little bit longer. Like it's just it, nothing will satisfy them, right? And I think that um, we're always long term optimistic about real estate, just like you said, and short term paranoid. You know, we're always short term, like, "Oh my God, is the market yeah. gonna have like a one or two or three year kind of correction right now?" Mm-hmm. And are we prepared to handle that? Because we can't be naive. That can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. Although all of us thought it might have happened again by now and still hasn't happened. We're still short-term paranoid, but we're long-term very positive on real estate and it's what makes us take action. I almost think that buying investment property, as crazy as this might sound to some people, is much easier than buying your primary place of residence or your family home. Because if you get a good investment property and today you can make, make the numbers work and you're happy with them, it's kind of just an easy decision. Do the income cover the expenses? Mm-hmm. And if they do, okay, can I financially afford to buy it? But when you're buying a finan- your primary home, like Nick, when I was going through my last move into the home I'm in now, it's a little bit scary because you're spending a lot of money and it's not an income generator for you. And you're like, well, I'm going to spend all this money. And if there's a correction, this thing might come down totally. 20 or 30%. Yeah. And it's really no financial benefit to me. I already spent the money on this thing. Whereas investment properties, the decision making is almost a little bit easier if you have that long-term perspective. Well, when I bought my first fam- family home with my wife, with Diana, we were we were not married at the time when we were buying it. I'll never forget signing the mortgage documents because I had had a, a few properties already and and it was always other people paying for the properties. And this was the first time that I was signing mortgage documents, looking at a monthly payment. And I was like, I'm going to have to pay for this. this I'm time. responsible for this. So I got it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the decision was definitely, it was harder, which is weird, right? Cause you'd think for, for it's, it's the reverse for so many people. But once I realized that I had to pay, I'm like, well, this is a big problem. I got to figure out how to get other people to pay for my own house now, you know, cause it was easy to your point, it was so easy before because I just looked at what the expenses were, looked at the revenue. I'm like, okay. Right. And I don't know why. I guess I never had I never had a concern about renting out the property. We never have. I, I don't, don't know, know why I, either. Yeah, I don't they, know why. Neither it's have a very ever been natural concerned. concern. I think a lot of people go through it for some reason. I just, it never registered with me. Maybe that's a bad thing. Like maybe I was just so naive at that when we started, I was just so young and naive. I was just like, yeah, people rent properties and someone's going to pay me to, to live there. Well, we also now have this beautiful case study of the US where they went through that massive change in average home price right through the states and looking at their data rents we now know didn't move throughout that time they stayed firm and just kind of slightly trended their upward trend over some time where property prices took like in some areas right down to like a 60 percent correction and then they now come back up over what 10 years now Mm -hmm. or whatever but rents just kind of stayed stable so we kind of have that in our back pocket but you're right we were a little naive and just confident that we could always get tenants yeah i think it was a condo developer downtown remember in one meeting we were sitting in his boardroom, Nick, and what he said to us about there's always people who can are, are going to need a place to live. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking something else when he said the condo is the new apartment. And that was a number oh, there of was years ago that. when I was yeah, scared yeah, yeah. of the Toronto condo market. And it made a lot of sense. And like, he's right. Because, because they're not building any of these purpose-built rentals. Mm-hmm. And they were about to. Because it started making more financial sense, and then the the, the changes last year with the Liberal government when they put the rent controls, there's actually um, 
Irwin, you probably saw this too, that one of the buildings is just coming for sale. We won't get into the details of any of the buildings, but is just coming for sale um, in Toronto is actually was supposed to be built as a purpose-built rental. Now they're changing it to condos because of that. And because of that, if you buy that building, the occupancy is much sooner than the typical condo project. So, you know, he was right all those years ago. I, I didn't see it. Like, I mean, we didn't do as much in, in downtown Toronto, but, um, but yeah, in hindsight, totally it, was, right. it was a pretty, it was pretty accurate. So Irwin, you've been working with investors now eight years. What are some of the, uh, I don't know what, it, what are, so do you see common mistakes people make or have there been success, some successes personally or with investors that you can reflect back on? What have you learned over this last eight years? The biggest thing I've learned is whoever wants the most will get it done no matter their situation. And that's always really impressed me. Uh, like one of our clients, Evelyn, VIP member at Rockstar, you know, I met her as a 26 year old girl and had no idea she she now she's only 31 and she has 10 properties. And she wasn't making a lot of much money and she didn't have any help from family. She wasn't born rich or anything like that. And she got it done. And, and I, every day I see people, I see guys in their mid forties who have like a million dollars of equity in their home make like 200 grand and they don't have this kind of success. They're just not near as motivated. But what about, but, but so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. What about they're making 200 grand? Yeah, so they maybe don't have they to. don't need to go buy those, you know, those, those, those properties. Cause, mm -hmm. cause someone listening that's making 200 grand, they're like, yeah, well, why am I going to go buy a place? Mm -hmm. And in, in this instance, mm -hmm. um, cause I'm familiar with her, some of her properties as well. So in Hamilton, I'm going to go buy this place. I'm going to rent it out for whatever, make a couple hundred bucks cash flow a month or whatever, mm -hmm. cause I'm making 200 grand. So, so those people have that mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but Maybe that's yeah, a bad you, example. What do you say to that? So I have, an, I have another example. Like, so for my age group, lots of people, you know, my age, you know, mid 30, late 30, they have kids, you know, massive mortgages. Maybe they make 150, 200 grand, maybe a bit more as a household income, but they have no other assets. And they're spending their HELOCs on like yeah. cars yeah. and cottages and renovations for their homes. Which is, com which is more common than... Extremely common. Yeah, yeah. Like it's extremely common. Because I see it in my own neighborhood. Like I see... I see people, I see my neighbors. I know, I have an good idea what they make and then they're putting in a pool. Like, where'd they get that money from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if the 150 or 200 dries up, um, yeah. you know, and it does eventually, um, you know, if there's nothing else to sustain you mm -hmm. at that time, it, it can it can change things. What was driving Evelyn? You said, you know, whoever wants it the most. She got 10 properties starting at 26. What drove her? She wanted her money working hard. And then what, uh, I don't know if this is what drove her, but she's one of my, couple clients who've retired their partners like I that's it, funny because I I generally it's generally the men my male clients who say I want to retire my wife I actually have quite a few female clients who've retired their husbands she's one of them so I actually made the joke to my so just to be clear you mean that she's been able to through her properties yeah. have her husband not work correct he, he was able to give up his job yeah that's pretty cool how and Evelyn how long have you been working with her now five six years. five six years yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time I met her too. The same thing in the Burlington office because I remember, you know, what she was doing. She was living in a home and she was renting out the rooms to students. She was, yeah, you know, I guess she was early twenties at that time, right? And I, because I, I emailed her the other day um, about something, and I, I said, "Man, I still remember when you told me that story," and it always stuck out in my head. I'm like, "Man, if you know people that are willing to do that type of stuff, because when you're young and you have the flexibility to do it, it gives you such opportunity, right?" Mm -hmm. 
So, but it just always stuck with things. Like if you're willing to do that, you, there's, you have drive to do a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And the people, to your point, the people who are putting in the pools of using their credit lines, if they just use their credit line to buy an income property and waited a year or two and let some equity build up in yeah, those income properties, it would paid for the pool, right? But it's that instant gratification, which drives everyone. Mm -hmm. And just so anyone listening to this, very few people, very few Canadians we meet who will walk in here have actual savings anymore. Like people are tapping into equity on different properties yeah. they own. No one we meet anymore is walking in here saying, oh, I just happened to have $40,000 saved up in my savings account. Doesn't really, We don't hear that in Canada very often. And Erwin, to your point about the people in their 40s who are not taking action, I think in if you're making 200 plus a year and you know, you're living in a good area and kind of life is good, so why would I get an income property? I think they have to sell themselves on the macroeconomic picture that will show them that incomes are being crushed and that to maintain their level of um, the, the standard of living that they want to, mm -hmm. to maintain, they're going to have to have some hard assets and preferably, preferably income producing hard assets in their lives. You know, and that's just a long-term trend that we're here because of the continued low interest rates and uh, the the kind of rise of hard assets over the over the last ten years, which we think is going to continue into mm -hmm. the future. Unless they really sit down and have that hard thought with themselves, it's hard to kind of get them out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think where pe those people get into that comfort, they'll they'll get out of that comfort zone is because they're frustrated with the work. Yeah, and same yeah, thing that, with that with, like, will do it. That will do it. Same yeah. thing with folks with like pensions. Like you have to exchange, like what forty. 40 years of your life in order to get that money. Same thing with the person who's making 200 grand. You have to stay working that job. As soon as you stop working that job, the money disappears. Right? And then and then my mind goes on tangents because we're talking about how there's no savings. I think a lot of Canadians, people in general, are banking on selling their homes for retirement. Totally. Yeah, of course. And then, yeah. then like, this, the, 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 so I'm a socialist, right? I'm a, I'm a social, I'm a pragmatic socialist. So the socialist in me then worries, okay, you sell your house, what are your kids going to do? Because I'm already thinking, uh, I had this realization about a month ago, I don't think I can ever sell my house because I, I need to leave it to my kids. Because I have investment property that I say I bought it for my kids, but I don't expect them to ever live on the Hamilton Mountain. <laughs> so I think about these people who retire based on their home equity, the cash out, and then what about their kids? Because, you know, we're talking about our buying our homes. Like we cannot get in near anywhere close to the same price we paid for our first homes. What are our kids going to do? So good chance they'll rent, right? And then if they never own a home, they'll never enter middle, the true middle income. They'll never be middle-class folks who have an asset. And then what happens to their kids? So my thinking is, if you're Erwin, one of those people that's still- sounding like a very sad story. <laughs> it is a sad story because I'm scared <laughs> as crap. Agreed. I yeah, have the yeah, fear. Yeah. Right? And this is why I try to pass, like, educate my clients on and like, put this idea in their head. If you sell your house, if your kids can't buy a house afterwards, you probably just set off a chain reaction of tenants for all- Generations. That's your legacy. Is your, If people care for the legacy. Everyone has a different- the middle class, it's like what we speak about. Yeah. The, the middle class is being, it, it, it is Destroyed. being wiped out done. in front of it. It's just, it's yeah. it's a slow moving train. So you don't hardly anyone's realize realizing it, it yet. But yeah. it's happening. You may be middle income, middle class income, but you'll have no assets. Mm. It's like a, it's a, yeah, it's like a train wreck that's happening in slow motion and no one's kind of seeing the end result yet. It's just horrible. Yeah. Um, if you look at, if you look at other countries that were further ahead of us economically early on, and that definitely they, tre they, they trend with different, different um 
patterns like this before us, you're seeing it happen at a, you know, at a greater state, right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. is a good example too, but we're following close behind. It's, it's, it's not changing. The, the growth of the middle class is coming from these emerging economies. Like you look at China, a place like China, they've had explosion of middle class because it didn't exist there before. But if you look at their traje- tra- trajectory long term, depending on the decisions they make, it's likely going to follow the same thing. But but I mean, there's got to be some sort of some sort of change. The, the monetary policy is forcing this this to happen, right? And it's literally happening right in front of us. You had a good line, Tom, at one of the events that we spoke to, and you said, "Hey, look, what was it? You're like, if you own prop, if the people look around you." Oh yeah, we had that was one of our bigger events, and we said, "Hey, look, if you're sitting next to someone right now who's owned property for the last ten years, whether we've helped them or the, you know, regardless, doesn't sure. matter if they've held this property for ten years, and you have not." The person next to you may have banked 500000 a million, a million and a half, $2 million in equity over the last few years, and you haven't. That's the wealth transfer that we're talking about that is being ripped out of the middle class and being handed over to people who own assets. So we're, you're either going to own assets or you're not going to mm-hmm. own assets. And this happened in the last 10 years. How many people have we worked with over the last, and it's, it's recently over the last few years that have come to us and say, hey guys, thanks, you know. Irwin, Nick, Tom, you've helped me bank a million dollars in equity, a million and a half, two million dollars yeah. in equity, you know, and it's not something we discuss a lot, but because we don't, we're not focused on that. We're not trying to make people the big money. We're just day by day survival, short term paranoid, long term positive yeah. kind of thing. And it's long term, like you were, you know, what you were saying, Irwin, and like you just said too. And, you know, some people listen to this and they'll be like, well, look, over the last 10 years, you know, real estate's yeah, done this and that. But you know what? It was, it was 10 years ago now, there was that little slide that you were talking about when you bought it in 2007 or whatever. But, but it, you look at other periods in time and, and take a 10 year window and, and, and you see the things that happen, you know, and if you look, take any long term, long-term period and kind of apply the same kind of vision to it, it looks very similar. Right. So it doesn't have to be this. Obviously this last 10 years has been nicer, but again, that's because the governments have tried to kind of rip more money because they've need to pay their own debt with money printing and all that stuff. We can get into another time where we got into it with the, the economic one. But um, anyway, yeah, it's just, it's something it's that hits home for sure. Erwin, how many people do you think you've worked with now over eight years? How many investors? Any idea? 200? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, something like that. And uh, if someone comes to you today, you're working uh, same kind of strategy, find cash flowing properties, same mm-hmm. idea, moving to different areas. Do you have uh, any favorite spots now? Any property types that you like? Uh, a lot of our clients are d- choosing to do basement suiting to to have that income. Okay, so yeah. can you describe like a second, like a legal second suite kind of thing? Yeah, so typical, we're buying suburban houses uh, that are built around 1950s, 1960s. With separate side or rear entrances that go that have stairs that go to the basement. Uh, you know, we need proper ceiling heights for somewhere around six, 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 seven, and then we finish. We go to the we typically hire Andy Tran to help us with the design process and permit process, and yeah, and work with contractors to get it done. Uh, most of my clients don't don't do much in terms of like painting or throwing hammers or anything like that. Uh, it's mostly just outsourced and delegated. We're actually going to bring Andy on. We haven't yet. We got to bring Andy on mm-hmm. because he's a great resource for all yeah. of us. He's one of my first clients. Yeah, was he? Yeah. Yeah, got it. So Andy Trend, if you're listening um, uh, and, and don't know who he is, he helps people with kind of the legalization of a second suite in yeah. a home. Um, and then you are you always do cool stuff. Can you talk about the Hamilton Basket Brigade? And yeah. you were going to tell me earlier the power of what, – what are you up to with the Hamilton Basket Brigade? So you you, uh, you showed us that presentation on uh, Power of Now. Uh, I, love, I love the Disney example, how, how when you're at Disney – 
most of the time it's probably kind of miserable. Hot dogs are too expensive. Just like Canada's Wonderland for people who haven't been to Disney. You know, everything's expensive. Everything's deep fried. Standing in line. Last standing in line. Day. Sweating. Yeah, sweating. Kids are screaming. Spending sun. too much money. All right. But then, the, but then there's always no like the moment. No good food. There's always like that powerful moment, like when the kid gets off the, the ride and says, I want to do it again. Right. Just big smiles, laughing. And that's what you remember. So with our own charity, we're thinking we, we were getting that when we were small, no one knew we were coming. So we had that great moment where like surprise because we, so the Hamilton Basket Brigade is something that I started uh, with a friend back in 2014. Uh, we deliver uh, holiday dinners. We started with Christmas. So Turkey and uh, a box full of groceries for all this, all, with all the trimmings. So, you know, like bread, butter, cranberry sauce, apple pie, that sort of stuff. Right. And so when we were small, we started with six families and they didn't know what were coming. So when you show up to someone's door with food and they're not expecting to be able to eat that weekend, like they're like, wow, we blow the socks off of them. Uh, we've kind of... We're so you've created your own moment yeah. for them, for oh, you, yeah. for everyone. It was an, it's an incredible moment. It's the, my favorite volunteer experience I've ever done because I started doing it in Mississauga with, uh, with the Toronto Basket Brigade, uh, which is... Which is uh, inspired and founded by Tony Robbins. So then we thought we'd bring it to Hamilton because I didn't want to make the commute to Mississauga. I wanted to do it ourselves. And, uh, and, then, and then it just started ballooning because uh, what started with six, we, we grew to 36 families. And then for a while, we doubled for every event. We were telling you just to double every time. Yeah, it's, crazy. <laughs> it's hard. So what what number are you at now? We did 350 this past weekend. 350 families with about with the help of about 200. And volunteers. how are you? Tr- are you still trying to keep those moments where people now see you coming? They because we've gotten so big, and for privacy protection reasons, when we were small, we could, we could get away with this stuff. Like people just like slip us a slot of piece of paper with names and addresses because they weren't supposed to. We're not supposed to know people's names and addresses, right? When we were small, they could do that. But now that we're so big, it has to be like full disclosure. Uh, every family has to be called in advance uh, so that they know we're coming. So we've kind of lost that moment. And also some people were like, just became ungrateful because we had to stretch so far to so they many ex- families. Why? Because they were expecting they it? They were expecting it, right? Like this is Hamilton. I won't get into politics, but yeah, people people, people get accustomed to things. Maybe it's just pride that we see at the door. Because for anyone who's seen Tony Robbins uh, explain the story, it was a horrible experience for the volunteer. It was a wonderful experience for Tony Robbins. So if anyone doesn't know, like Google, Google Tony Robbins Basket Brigade and you can see him talk about it. And then, yeah, pay attention to what he says about the volunteer's experience. He got yelled at, he had the door slammed in his face, right? Horrible experience, right? So now we're, so with the power, power of moments, we're trying to increase, people know we're coming. So what we're going to, the plan is to change the charity in that we won't do 350 families. We're probably going to shrink it down to about 50 to 70 for at least a test for Thanksgiving. We're going to, we're going to budget four to five times more per family and we're going to do more adopt the family style. So they'll still know we're coming, but I want, I want a family picture. I want 50 to 200 words on what happened and why you need this. And they're going to give us a wish list as well. And then for the power moment, I want them to come to us. They'll come to the school uh, the day before Thanksgiving. And so that us and our volunteers and our key donors will be there when they unbox what they have, what they get. And then I, and then I want thank you cards on hand so, people, so they can fill them out. And so that for anyone who can't be there, especially our key donors, they'll get a copy. Right? So then they understand what we're doing understand the power of the moment and uh, one of our key volunteers Nancy she she said guaranteed tears 
And so actually the biggest problem I see is having 50 families and everyone bawling. So I actually see that's our biggest problem right now. <laughs> and you want that because you want kind of to be making a direct impact because you kind of, you feel like at 350 it was losing that yeah, feel. It was, it, we were losing that's it. That's unfortunate. Yeah, 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 got it. And that was the feedback I was getting from, my, from our volunteers. And then uh, we were getting some donor fatigue as well, volunteer fatigue. It was really difficult to get volunteers yeah, running to a deliver 350. Tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we needed to change, uh, and this and the power of now kind of kicked kicked off. Yeah, that I idea. think it's the power of what? Let me let me. It's the power of I think the it's power, power of moments. moments. Why certain experiences have extraordinary impact by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Um, and then with the families as well, my request is: I want your worst of the worst of the worst. Who needs this more than anybody else does? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's cool. There's so much. Yeah, that that's so cool that you do this, man. Right. That's really cool. Um, if anyone wants to find information about that, is there, are you changing up the URL now? Is it still the Hamilton Basket Brigade? We're still called the Basket Brigade. Okay, so where can people go to find out more information about it? HamiltonBasketBrigade.com. HamiltonBasketBrigade.com. Yeah. And then uh, you do other kind of crazy stuff. You've been doing this cross, you do CrossFit stuff now. You do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Why are you doing this stuff? Is this a distraction from the real estate stuff? Uh, I've always liked working out. It's actually Nick's fault that I started doing CrossFit. Uh, because Was it I, Nick's fault? Yeah. He's the one. He's the one. Because what Nick challenged you? No, he didn't. No, I keep. I keep to myself with this stuff. You guys are the ones that are trying to drag me into 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 things. Because when I was when I was at my job, I had workout buddies, and so it was a it was a it was an event that we go for at lunch and we lift weights and we talk trash and we we tried handstand pushups back then. It was so bad, right? And then when I left. I had like a had a regular gym membership somewhere, and I was just like so deep. I wasn't motivated. I wasn't going. It and then they, and then Nick mentioned, cro- mentioned CrossFit, and so I tried that, and like, oh, this is great! And, you know, I'm motivated <laughs> again. Fun. Well, the competitiveness in you, like, you're a quiet, competitive guy, right? Yeah, so yeah. you don't, you're not like too overstated, but inside, I know you're a competitive guy. Yeah, yeah. Because I know, because when you started CrossFit, you kept asking me, well, how much, how fast do you do this, and what do you do this, in? and I'm like, holy cow, just leave me alone. <laughs> and um, so, uh, so I think it brings out that too for anyone that's kind of motivated by that. It's obviously a good yeah. environment too, yeah. right? And results. I'm always and, about results. Yeah. Yeah. And plus you guys all work, like a lot of times you guys work, work out with a bunch of the guys from the office too, work out together. So that kind of, I think creates mm-hmm. a good environment as well. Totally. It's oh, all it's about so that fun. for me. I just like the, the social aspect of it. The fact that I don't have to think that there's a workout written on the board for me that I don't have to kind of figure out myself mm-hmm. and there's a social aspect to it. That's mm-hmm. everything I need. Yeah. Yeah. I'll gladly show up. Yeah. I always had the trouble too. Like I always had like my program printed with me and then I'd lose it or I get roughed up and I don't know what I'm doing. And again, I wasn't that motivated. Just lost the motivation to go to the gym by myself. Uh, and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's been the last couple of years now? Yeah, almost a uh, year and a half. It's just because I've, I've peaked. I can't get any better at my CrossFit. Uh, and also... Who says you can't get better at your CrossFit? You've decided that no, you can't get just, better? No, it's just this so hard. This is a 39-year-old now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, like you guys know, like how much can you add to like your snatch? And how long does it take you to add like five pounds to your snatch? Right? Got it. Versus I can learn. I just learned how to do a footlock. And I was like so amped. Like, cool. Like it's a... It's a, it's a yeah, the, for those learning, who don't know. the learning curve. Get, I mean, if you're new at Brazilian, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the learning like the new at anything, the learning curve is a lot it, steep, steeper in a way where the, the new skills you learn is a lot mm-hmm. faster. Mm-hmm. It's like people that start working out and, and then, you know, they they see all these gains quickly and they're like, oh my god, I'm going to be like either you know Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever mm-hmm. they want to, you know, whatever they're modeling their workout or whatever their 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 goal is very quickly, and then slowly. As your level of expertise gets higher, the gains get get slower Mm -hmm. and slower. I like stepping Mm -hmm. into that madness of like just the uh, stuff that I have hatred for. Like I hate running. I hate running. Just hate it. But I now run. (laughs) 
<laughs> just because I want to see, I want to test myself to see how good can I get at something that I absolutely just do not enjoy yeah. doing. Because I would much rather pick heavy objects off the floor instead of run. You know, and Erwin, mm -hmm. you see me going through this mess with my double unders, which I'm about to break through on. I promise you, I can get ten in a row now. I'm, I'm hoping I can do that later today. Um, but uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from. It's mm -hmm. kind of that new rush of yeah. like, hey, the Bra Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But the best uh, BJJ practitioners, CrossFit guys, that's what it, it turns into. That for, that'll happen to you in, in Jiu-Jitsu as well, right? I don't know. Like, you think I'm, there's so much to learn? There's so much to learn. Maybe if you learn that, if you learn it slowly, yeah, as that's does, true. Then maybe it takes yeah. a while. No, <laughs> there's, there's so much. Irwin, so we didn't uh, we didn't talk about family yet. So uh, <laughs> married, uh, you very conveniently. This is a very smart move. You married an accountant. Very strategic move as a real estate investor. Got to admit, so that was strategic on your part. Um, so yeah, married to Cherry Chan. Uh, two kids. Yeah, two kids. Um, how old are they? Four and two. Four and two. Mm -hmm. You guys, uh, Disney fans. Been to Disney World? <laughs> We've actually been trying to hide Disney from our hide kids. Disney. Why do no cruise fans? Is it, we're big going time on cruise? cruise fans. Yeah, that's what it is. We don't like the planning. We just like go show up and then enjoy. What would you tell? So uh, somebody listening to this thinks I don't understand. Like Irwin made this segue from quitting his job, and he was, you know, quote unquote, lucky enough to take this little mini sabbatical. He already had bought an investment property, so you know, I see how he did it, but I'm still confused on how maybe I can quit my job. Well, any, what, what kind of advice would you give that person? Because that's number one what we get is like, hey guys, Tom, Nick, why, how did you decide that you were going to go into real estate and how did you decide you were going to quit your job? Right. What would you tell them? Uh, I'd suggest a similar path that I did. Uh, you know, go slowly about it. And I've, and I have people have asked me before, I, I always suggest them as well to drop down to part-time, work from home more, like keep, keep, make this a test, see if you enjoy it, see if you can keep doing it. Um. Yeah, because lots of people have. We 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 can put people in touch with those people that have. What about what about finances? Did you go into credit line? Did you go into debt when you first quit, or were you able to sustain your, you know, your lifestyle? Uh, we had rental property, and my ex was making good money, and also, like the first property we bought, the house we lived in, the first house we lived in together, we bought it for like one hundred fifty four thousand. Crazy, right? Yeah, I was yeah. mortgage free at thirty. Yeah. All our standards have changed. Yeah, yeah, because that won't happen again. And that house was downtown Burlington. That house is worth probably over half a million now. So that won't happen again for anybody else. So again, there's being frugal, uh, and then yeah, having some cushion. It's a good way to start. Yeah, I you know someone listening to this is gonna think, oh my gosh, you guys got lucky. You guys bought properties for these prices you bought. So I'm not gonna be able to quit my, my job. But anyone listening to this, what I think we want to kind of share is that. The important part Irwin just shared is he was frugal. Mm -hmm. Like Nick and I, you were driving, uh, was your Honda Civic rusted? <laughs> that Honda Civic was rusted. It was. That one Honda of the, door, one of the doors ended up being My rusted. Honda Civic was four doors and beautiful. No, I don't care. No, my, mine was I, a beautiful the rust, Honda Civic. The rust was, a, was a rusted Honda it, Civic. That, that gave me pride. The more rust, the more proud I was of driving it. My Honda Civic was a beautiful Honda mm -hmm. Civic, a five-star Honda Civic. Nick's Honda Civic was, yeah, rust bucket on the doors. Um, but we were frugal too. You, and so it's interesting to hear that. Um, well, look, when it comes to the property prices, every, you know, when we bought, the people that sold us properties thought we were crazy for paying the prices we were paying, right? So we bought well, one one of the, the rentals that we bought. bought it yeah, privately it's true. It's, from not the like, guy. it's not like they were cheap at that time. We bought it for like 230 or something. But the guy that bought it was selling it to us. He had bought it at 65 grand. He's like, I just never imagined. He had only had like a, a, a interest-only mortgage on it ever. 
and he, you know, it, to him it was a windfall. He thought we were crazy for paying the, the amount we did. And actually, we actually overpaid for that property, but that's a whole other story. By by probably about twenty grand or so. But I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a great mistake. Like it's been a very very profitable mistake, right? But that's the thing. Like it, when you look in hindsight, everything looks like it's expensive. Twenty years ago, when you looked mm-hmm. at a loaf of bread. It was expensive compared to 20 years prior. But now when you look back, you're like, oh, man. It's actually, we actually have the hardest time with investors that we've worked with for like eight years because they remember the prices of eight years ago. So they think they're getting ripped off or Mm -hmm. it's too expensive today. It's actually easier to work with new investors who don't have that context because then they just look at the numbers and they decide Mm -hmm. if it's a good, good investment based on the income and the expenses and they kind of move forward. And it's not a straight line. Like we mentioned before, it's not a straight line. But if you look at monetary policy across the world until that changes, these trends are the reason these trends are where they are is because of that it, it, because the government is trying to take more money they're trying to inflate away their debt which inflates other assets that's that's why this is all caught co- this isn't like yeah, it's, it's not, not rocket, rocket science, science. this, point, this yeah. is kind of what's happening and yeah. they and they come out and state that that's their goal you know what i mean so it's like you're just kind of following what they're saying mm-hmm. so um yeah until that change, I, I, I just think i mean it was what benjamin tall i think you mentioned this he said if you think it's expensive now just wait. That's mm-hmm. how he ended the presentation, right? Deputy, I think he's like deputy chief economist. He's not the chief economist. For the, like for the, the record, we've CNBC. been saying that already for six months. I just want to go on the record yeah. and it's at least maybe a year. Um, but Erwin, uh, um, you now have a team work. You know, there's a group of you all working together. You guys are all investors together. Um, are you, you must feel feeling pretty grateful. Like, I don't know what's next kind of for the next 10 years happens. Or are you just constantly paranoid that you never oh, take yeah, a moment paranoid. and reflect? Still yeah. the fear, because then, because I remember when when James Mag started working for me, like, and then he quit his job, and now I'm responsible for somebody else. <laughs> it's crazy, right? <laughs> right? People think, oh yeah, being the boss is so great. I'm responsible for so many people's means of making a living. <laughs> yeah, that's how I view it, at least. Got it. So you, so a whole bunch of us walk around in a constant state of paranoia, but I think that's that it can be healthy. We're not, we're not, I don't think anyone listening, if you're, it's not like we're kind of constantly scared and constantly freaking out. It's just, you're constantly kind of looking over your shoulder a little bit and trying yeah. to plan for the future. And then, and then addressing those fears with like, you know, like just like my, my decision to buy another investment property. And the saying I keep going back to with people with, especially who people get mad at me for charging the rents that I do is like, okay, the saying, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. So understand the game. That's a very general way to put it because the game is very complicated. The game being macroeconomics microeconomics and then how do you profit from it because that's always that's how I always look at any piece of information how do I profit from this you know like for example when Doug Ford won leadership for PCs he's polling ahead right now and so I look at okay so this is this is the likely reality how do I capitalize from it I don't care about anything else how do I capitalize from anything so I'm a capitalist in that way I forget what the question it's funny. Was. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. You said you were a socialist, but then you have these capitalist thoughts. And yeah. you, I also, when you said that you never thought you should sell your home, I also thought you were an old European man. <laughs> because that is a very old European yeah. strategy of like buying a house here in North America, never selling. It gets passed on to your children. Yeah. That's kind of how it works. But again, it's, it's a pragmatic decision, though. Yeah. Because how else will my kids get, and I, grandkids get into the market? And I think that's why I don't pay attention personally to a lot of the politics in the world, uh, you know, at least uh, provincially or even federally. I just assume that's going to be 
a mess of decisions mm -hmm. and I'm going to understand the, the playing field of money that I'm working with and I'm going to navigate uh, through that to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what led us to real estate. It's not, Nick and I talk about all this all the time. It's not like we feel real estate is the be all and end all and the perfect investment. It just happens that in this world with these money rules, it works really well. Yes. That's it. Right. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Right. Um, so and that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is that this, this was a decision based on everything else. It's not because someone told us in real estate investing was a good decision, is a good thing to do. It's because of everything else that drives that decision. You've come to a decision based on the game. Yeah, looking at everything else and, and trying to th uh, mm -hmm. f find what's best, right? Yes. Do you also buy gold and silver, or we have not we have not brainwashed you into that yet? No, I need more. <laughs> oh, okay, good. All right, Irwin's, got, Irwin's on the gold and silver bandwagon. Cryptos, Bitcoin, is that your thing? No, not personally. No. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah. It's funny because I, I uh, so I I pulled an audience. How many people have actually used a cryptocurrency for as a currency as a means of exchange? One lady puts her hand up. Of course, it's a middle-aged Chinese woman. <laughs> and I'm Chinese, so I can say that. So she said, and so I asked her, like, how, what happened? She goes, oh, I know someone who bought a house. I'm like, okay, well, no, someone didn't actually buy a house. They moved the money from China to Canada. That's how, that was the means to move oh, the money. Oh, got it. Okay. You Changed converted it, it back. Because yeah. who's going to accept so Bitcoin So they smuggled for a house? the money out of China yeah, using, right. Bitcoin. using Bitcoin. Yeah, right. that's yeah, what it was made for. It. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so, 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 she, so I have still yet to meet someone who's done a legitimate transaction with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency as tr as a proper, as a legal You know, transaction. Nick, Nick and, and, and we can, yeah, this is a big discussion, but Nick and I were talking about this the other day. And, the, and the, what I boil it down to is that until any government allows you to pay taxes in uh, something like a Bitcoin, the network effect that is so often discussed about cryptocurrencies, I cannot see how it explodes. Because the idea behind the network effect is that the internet isn't very useful when there's two people. When it's just me and you, Erwin, the internet, it's not too useful. But when Nick joins, it's a little bit better. Three of us can, can use it and communicate and so forth. When there's 100 people and 200 people, the network effect takes off and the internet gets more and more valuable. And that's the whole idea behind cryptocurrencies, that the network effect will make it more valuable as more people use it. But like you, we can't meet many people actually using it. Mm -hmm. We meet a lot of people who are using it as a store of value. Mm -hmm. Well, the biggest thing to your point is like, as a business for us, we, we can't use it. Right, so you're, you're we can't about pay taxes. our taxes. So if we if we charge people in Bitcoin and we collect Bitcoin, well, we can't remit any Bitcoin. what we have to remit to the government mm -hmm. in Bitcoin. monthly. So it's a big barrier for us as a business. And if 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 you know this doesn't apply to us, this applies to all these businesses. So then it creates it, it's it's harder and harder to get this network effect because there's you you can't use it for the transactions, the everyday transactions that right. you need to do that are regulated by the government. Yeah, because we're not anti-Bitcoin no, at all. We think all. it's the proper solution. It's much better than the currencies going on in the country. We want it to work. It's just until that barrier is achieved, it's much more a store of value than it is a medium of exchange and a currency. But I don't even right? think people are using it for any of those purposes. I yeah. think they're just speculating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and oh, that's yeah, a whole no, different sure. story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're definitely going to have to do a big, big crypto talk at some point. Well, I'm so not er getting involved in that. Erwin, that's like, Erwin, we're well, that's promote, we love, no, the idea of it and the, and, and the blockchain technology, the idea of a distributed ledger is going, going to change the world. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that changes the world. But but the cryptocurrency, the, the currencies in and of itself are restricted. Well, there's a couple of things government. you don't, I still like religion, I still stay away from when speaking with people. Bitcoin's now on that yeah, thing. We and diet, diet became on that thing too. I don't talk to people about diet. Everyone's got their strong yeah, you know what, beliefs. Erwin, we didn't, so I got we this did, weird we, list of Erwin things I don't talk about Erwin was asking me about people. this lion's mane mushroom drink that we're having. We have to save that for the next time you're on. Erwin, <laughs> uh, thanks for doing this, man. So best website for people to find, or find out more about you? Uh, 
probably my podcast website that seems to be most wherever most people reach out to me uh the, the what url is www.truthaboutrealestateinvesting truthaboutrealestateinvesting.ca or.com i forget <laughs> okay so we'll put it in the notes because everyone doesn't know his own url so i'll get I have the too best many URLs. i'll get the best url and share that with everyone dude thanks for doing this man really appreciate it happy to be here hey everyone it's tom kradza so hopefully you enjoyed that episode with erwin if you're looking for any real estate uh, resources, you can find out uh, find a bunch of them at rockstarinnercircle.com, including um, links to the different YouTube videos that we do, different blog posts that we've shared, and articles about real estate investing. The free books that we give away are on that website too. You can also find a link on there to come to one of the free classes that we do um, as an introduction to what we do here at Rockstar. So you can get a link to that free 90-minute class on that website as well. So if you go to Rockstar Inner Circle. Dot com. You can find all those things. We're having a, a, a blast doing this podcast. We have some good episodes scheduled coming forward. Um, our lawyer is going to come on soon. We also are scheduling uh, someone, um, an expert in the field, to really talk about the Ontario, the new Ontario standard lease agreement that's going to affect all of us. Also, um, she's going to be sharing um, the latest on the, mar- the federal marijuana legislation. Um, we don't think it's has royal assent yet but we know it's coming down the pipe and we're going to talk about how it's going to affect um, real estate investors um, in Canada and then some some of the specifics around Ontario which haven't been rolled up but what we can expect so we're going to be talking about that kind of stuff we have some second suite talk um, coming down the pipe and we'll be doing an episode on that uh, shortly as well as soon as we have that booked I'll share more details so a lot of stuff coming your way thank you for all the feedback we're getting about this podcast we're really having fun doing it until next time your life Your terms.